This episode is dedicated to the memory of Roddy's dear friend, Jane Powell, who passed away last night at the age of 92. Rest in peace, Jane. Your sweet spirit will be eternally missed. Portions of this episode were recorded via Zoom. Due to this recording method, sound quality may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Just Yesterday, and welcome September 17th. Happy birthday, Roddy. Can you believe that Roddy would have been 93 years old today? I can't, but I'm very happy that the day is finally here at last. If you're like me, you wait each year with bated breath for the 17th day of September, as it's basically Christmas for the McDowell fandom. Each of us have our own special things that we love to do in honor of Roddy. So, for the podcast this year, I want to do something a little bit different to start off the show. But, before I get ahead of myself, the film I have chosen for today's birthday bash is the classic 1972 Irwin Allen disaster film, The Poseidon Adventure. And there was such a wealth of research information available, including media, music, and trivia, that I almost don't know, even as I'm recording this, what I'm going to do with all of it. Since Roddy's last birthday, life has been such a crazy whirlwind that I really didn't begin planning in depth for this episode until two days ago. Oops. So this will officially be the first time I'm legitimately pulling in Indiana Jones and making up my plans as I go on this podcasting adventure, and I hope it turns out enjoyably for you. This year, I have invited a guest onto the show to talk about annual fan traditions for Roddy's birthday. Since I have lightly talked about it in the past with Julie Carricker, I thought it would be fun to have another fan talk about what they love to do in honor of Roddy each year. So, to begin the podcast today, I will be interviewing Allison O'Connor from Winnetka, Illinois. But first, and without further ado, let's get going with episode 22 of Not Just Yesterday. Every night at seven, you walk in as fresh as clover, and I begin to sigh all over again. Every night at seven, you come by. Like me returning and me, oh my, I start in yearning again. You seem to bring far away spring near me. I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven. Every time the same thing happens, I fall once again in love, but only with you. Hi, Allison. Thanks so much for being on the show today. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? Good. I'm fantastic. So today is Roddy's birthday. And so part of what I'm wanting to do here is to just talk about fan traditions for his birthday every year. But first, I would like to start with how Roddy came into your life. I know that you've said that he's been a very important part of your life, as he has been for most of us. And I just really would love to know when he came into your life, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, and what his impact ultimately was on you and how that's carried you through over the years. Well, I'm actually pretty new. It's been about a year through the pandemic. My parents began watching Columbo and I decided to join them and we came across this episode 
he's just such an interesting character that I instantly wanted to watch more stuff he was in. And then I went to Disney Plus and there was already six movies there. Yep. <laughs> and it just like grew from there. And he was in The Poseidon Adventure and it's one of my mom's favorite movies. Mm-hmm. So it was just natural that I had begin watching as much as I could. And I'm up to like 36 now. I definitely want to go out and get something red velvety mm-hmm. inspired by like all of you. <laughs> I am going to watch my favorite movies like Lord Love a Duck, That Darn Cat. I'm going to go through my double exposure books. I'm going to just keep it in mind. I've kind of been annoying my mom because her birthday is the 20th. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> but luckily she loves him too. So that's good. She's been really nice about it. That's awesome. It always helps when you have family that's supportive of it. Yeah, she's she's grown up with him, and she loves that darn cat and Poseidon Adventure, as I said, and mm-hmm. so it actually works perfectly because she's willing to see a bunch of really campy stuff. <laughs> she ended up liking some of it. It's interesting how the Poseidon Adventure seems to be one of the main films that I hear about the most when talking to fans about their experiences with Roddy. There's something about the character that Roddy plays in the film that just absolutely sucks people in right away. Now, he has that capability on his own anyway, but Julie Carriker was also inspired by Roddy's character in The Poseidon Adventure, and she saw it in the drive-in theater in 1972. Ironically, my mom wanted me to see it, like, forever. Really? I kept saying, no, 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 I don't want to see Poseidon Adventure. But then I was the one saying, like, what's the Poseidon Adventure? I hear Roddy's in it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you just love how that works out? (laughs) Yeah. So as far as, like, the impact he's had on you, I know that everyone has a vast myriad of differences in their stories that always end up coming up somewhat similarly. But for you personally, besides just being in awe of him during the pandemic, what has he ended up meaning to you? Well, not only is he a really electrifying presence on screens and stuff, I think as an artist and as a person and a personality, he means a lot to me because he was able to reach out and connect with so many people. And his legacy has been so far-reaching, and it's amazing to me. The fact that he was so into art and photography, because I've always been into that stuff, too. I love taking pictures. His fascination with documenting everything, really something I can relate to, because I'm always taking pictures and stuff. His fascination with old Hollywood, because I'm also really attached to a lot of old Hollywood stars. And it's kind of another thing that worked out perfectly because one of his friends is Betty Davis, who's my personal favorite actress. And I've always been trying to find out as much about her as I could and watching her her movies. And then I found out he knows all her movies, as he says, chapter and verse. Mm -hmm. So it's just incredible that I find this actor I love, who's also Betty Davis super fan. And the fact that he's such a mystery is also really intriguing because he met so many people and knew all these stories, but he was so discreet and he always managed to just be so professional about everybody and everything and literally take all the secrets to the grave. Mm-hmm. He is really inspiring in that he has so much integrity, but he's been so gregarious and done everything and seen everyone. And it's inspiring to me. It inspires me to get more out of life and to go more places and see more things. And not just, like, be in, like, a bubble. 
And it's been very similarly my experience as well. When I grew up, I was raised on all the classic movies. And one of the first films I ever saw Roddy in was that darn cat. But I was about five. And I remember seeing him and going, oh, he's really cool. I like him. But it never really occurred to me that he was the same guy that I had seen in that darn cat when I started seeing him in all the other 70s shows growing up. And then the end of 2016 was like really a a rough year for me. And so I was kind of going through a period of life where I didn't really know what was going to happen. And I was really blue and depressed. And then in April of 2017, I Googled him and it was just like all of a sudden this insatiable thirst for wanting to know more about this person happened. Something about Roddy saturates people with this feeling that nothing is impossible and somehow enriches every fan who has watched him over the years with this feeling that they can do something special with just a tiny little bit of who they are. And I think that that has impacted so many people. And with each person that I talk to, just like with your story, you felt that. You saw that little bit of magic and you just wanted to reach out and grab it. And it's made you feel like you have so much importance that you didn't feel like you had before. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not a very social person at all. I'm very um, withdrawn and shy. And I have a very low tolerance for dealing with people. Seeing how many people he was able to connect with and how many friendships he was able to maintain, that's made me want to strive to be more open and friendly and willing to make and seek out and keep friendships. Side note, ironically, I kind of have my own story where like, I saw him at first, but I didn't realize it was him until later. Mm-hmm. Mine was actually Night Gallery. Oh, the best. Um, so I was like in eighth grade, my parents wanted to watch some Night Gallery, so they got it from the library. Uh-huh. And I think we only saw the two first parts, the um, Roddy and the Joan Crawford. And Roddy's character was so awful. And <laughs> yes. I just remembered hating that character so much. <laughs> yes. And I was so happy when he died. <laughs> and so annoyed when Ozzy Davis ended up dying in the end yeah. in his hand. And then when I was going through his filmography and stuff, I found out he's in Night Gallery. And then I realized, oh, my God, he's that guy I hated so much. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard some people say similar things where their first experience was a villain character. And they're like, I feel so silly now because I hated him. (laughs) (laughs) But it just goes to show you how much talent he had because he was such a wonderful person in real life. And then he could turn around on a dime and play these horrendous characters that you just loathe. But then when I sat out the night gallery again and I saw the episode, I'm like, oh my God, this character is actually pretty charming. <laughs> I know. He's so evil. <laughs> I know. I, fa- I found night gallery about, I think maybe a year or so into having rediscovered him and knowing his true personality and whatnot. And I actually found myself somewhat rooting for him. Because, oh <laughs> not not because of like what he what he did with his uncle, but like because what the Ozzie Davis character does is equally just as evil as what the Jeremy character does to his uncle. You know, I mean, gaslighting yeah. him into death, basically. It's it's 
as Roddy would put it, it's deliciously malevolent. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so seeing those two dynamics, I mean, there there have been many villainous characters that he've played where you really can't help but kind of feel sorry for them and sort of root for them because they have little bits and pieces of a drama in their story arc where they've been wronged somehow. Now, oh, definitely. The Jeremy character is not one of them. There's not really anything redeeming about him. It's just Roddy is so stinking cute. You can't help but love him a little bit <laughs> because he just loses his charm. Yeah, totally. That's how it was with Columbo for me. Yeah. Honestly, like when watching Columbo, I, I naturally root for the villain because the villain's always interesting. Uh huh. But when the Roddy episode happened, it was like, oh my god, this guy is dressed so amazingly. <laughs> and he is so obnoxiously charming. Mm-hmm. I want him to get away with blowing up his uncle. <laughs> yes. That was one of the episodes I was thinking about when I was talking about how you root for some of the villains. Roger is absolutely 100% number one on the list. Because his uncle is such a stink bag. <laughs> you just oh, totally. you just don't like the uncle. And I mean, you know, he's such a terrible character. And then you feel this odd little bit of satisfaction with the car goes boom, <laughs> you know. Oh, definitely. And then when Roddy plays that character just so deliciously, it's just, you can't help but love it. And at the end when he goes bananas, he makes you feel for him. And as I've learned more about Roddy, it's dawned on me how much it turns out he's actually kind of playing himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, too, is another part of the magic that Roddy brings, because he's always carrying a little tiny piece of himself wherever he goes. It's amazing how positive he is about his early life. Like, right. he always seems to be, like, saying, like, oh, my mom is really nice. Even when he's, like, talking about how she kind of kept him and his sister in a vacuum. And he had this really insular life where he just went to work and then school in the same place and didn't really socialize with any other people outside of that world. And everything was orchestrated by his mom. Mm -hmm. And it kind of gave him an identity crisis, I think, from what he said, like, because that was pretty much what his mom trained him for. And that was her dream always. Yeah, and it was really interesting, like you say, exactly how positive he was. Even after his mom passed away, he just kind of remained in that same story with everybody. But the fact of the matter is, according to Jane Powell, he was really unhappy for a couple of years because his mother wasn't just controlling every aspect of his life. She was kind of abusive. She was this very manipulative woman and a typical stage mother and basically a nightmare in some cases. And she had such a role in controlling what Roddy and Virginia did. It got to a point where Roddy just felt like he couldn't live unless he left. And his sister and Jane Powell were two of the most orchestrative in his moving to New York City eventually. They were the ones who said, look, you need to leave. Because if you don't, you're going to end up like every other child actor, probably dead in a ditch somewhere. You've got to you've got to find yourself and you've got to get away from your mom. And thank God he listened. Yeah, it's so great. He got his space and was able to grow as an actor. And also, just as you said, find himself because it must have been really hard just being in that. Mm-hmm. One little detail when he and his sister and mom were on the boat to America, 
she got them to perform a Midsummer Night's Dream in their costumes for like added buzz. And mm-hmm. a reporter was even on the boat and like took a picture of them for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And she's such a marketing genius, but right. oh my god, she just is ruthless. Yes. And he, even even Virginia basically said the same thing that, you know, mother just quote unquote happened to have the costumes with her. It's sad in a way, because when you see your typical stage mother, I mean, even the story of Gypsy Rose Lee, which everyone knows because of the film of Gypsy, she was the same way. She was always finding ways to market her kids. And in one way, it's kind of sad that stage mothers become such an abusive, toxic entity that they are in pretty much every case because of the fact that they market their kids so well. but behind the scenes, the kids are so miserable because the mothers are terrible to them, and yet they're able to make their kids famous. And Roddy was one of the lucky ones that managed to turn that misfortune of being the hounded child of a stage mother to being one of the most beloved character actors in the history of film. And he managed to go from old Hollywood to the golden age of Hollywood in the 60s and then carry on into modern-day Hollywood. I mean, how many people can say that? I'm just always in awe of, like, all the decades that he's worked through and how he was able to find work somehow, some way, no matter what. Yeah. Frank Langella, very disparagingly, says, like, oh, he was really good about kissing up to people or whatever. But no, he's just really resourceful yep. and talented. Really resourceful, very talented, and genuine. Yes. That is the key word. And that, that's something that people like Frank Langella and Eddie Fisher could not wrap their brains around because there wasn't a genuine bone in either of their bodies. They were both great big fakes, and that's why they were such miserable human beings. And don't get, yes. me, don't get me entirely started on that train because we'll be here till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but the people who have nice things to say about him, the people that truly knew him, not just the people who were in the circle because they were in a relationship with somebody that was close to him. It's amazing to see how many people on the spectrum of just old Hollywood, new Hollywood. And I mean, when you come into new Hollywood, I mean, you have huge names like Johnny Depp and Harrison Ford and Winona Ryder that were really close friends with Roddy and were at his house all the time before he died. And the people that he photographed and the people that he was friends with, there are probably millions of human beings on this planet that were very close friends with Roddy. And with Ruth. And that's not exaggeration. Yes, literally. And I'm always amazed that, like, the different people that came over, like Steve Martin and Martin Short and Dolly Parton. I'm like, oh my God, Dolly Parton. Right? (laughs) Exactly. And it just blows your mind. All of these people, they have nothing but wonderful things to say about Roddy. Even in his darkest moments, what was he doing? He wasn't tearing people down and making them feel like crap because he was miserable. He was building them up and doing everything that he possibly could to make sure that they were inspired to keep going when things got tough. And I wish that there were more people like that. I think, in a way, he was a lighthouse and a light keeper. And he was very much responsible for making sure that a lot of people were happy, both in his career, making the films that he made. Sure, he made some squeakers, but, you know, still, just his own presence in some of those squeakers was enough to make the films good and save them. And 
There are plenty of squeakers that he was in that I go to now that are like comfort movies for me, just for the fact of the matter that he was in it. And there's something about the character that he plays that's comforting. Oh, definitely. So for you, what is your go-to comfort film when it comes to Roddy? I'd have to say that darn cat. And I'd also have to go with Lord Love a Duck because it's so weird. When I first saw it, I was like, what am I watching? But (laughs) then it actually grew on me. It's so fascinating and so weird. I actually kind of like it now. Mm -hmm. Um, Hello Down There is another one because it's so weird, but it works. Yes. (laughs) Five Card Stud. It's so ridiculous, but I love it. Yeah. And he's so, he's deliciously evil in Five Card Stud. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's just one of those movies where he immediately comes on the screen and he's he's such a nasty, but you just love him so much. <laughs> oh, definitely. He's good at the evil Southern types. Yes, he really is. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much for being on the show. I think that this is going to be the highlight of the episode, to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. What is it, look at? I never saw anything like it. An enormous wall of water coming towards us. Oh, my God. The Poseidon Adventure. The most exciting escape adventure of our time. Now follow me! It took the lives of the 1,400 people on board and changed the lives of the few who would survive. Climbing to another deck will kill you all! And sitting on our butts is not gonna save us either! Don't look down. Now, if there's a chance for me to do something that I know how to do, please, but you've got to let me do it. You're going the wrong way, damn it! Who do you think you are, God himself? That's the way out. The combined talents of 15 Academy Award winners bring you Irwin Allen's production of The Poseidon Adventure. These were movies that even if you weren't working that day or that week or the stars even would come and stand around to watch the other people doing these spectacular things. So it was very, very thrilling and exciting. And I've never known of a movie where people come when they're not working and stand around and watch. They did. People either enjoyed working on an Irwin Allen picture or they didn't, and that I think goes for every other picture. But all of us who have ever worked for Irwin Allen and did, you know, stuff for Irwin, always rooted for Irwin. The first thing that Irwin Allen said to me was, have you read the book? And I said, no, I'm sorry, I haven't. He said, great, great, don't read it, because everybody hated your character and we don't want them to feel that way about you in the movie. He was just at his best. He was really the captain of the ship, of the Poseidon. He was a real old-fashioned showman, which doesn't exist anymore. He really knew how to make movies. He knew how to get people who knew how to make movies. Gene was nominated for the Academy Award, and then he won it for French Connection. So we had a great big cake for him, and everybody was just like in awe of him. You know, congratulations. We were all very happy. My character had a crush on him in the movie, and he was very fatherly towards me. Everybody was kind of like my surrogate parent in a way. Shelley Winters was a force. 
on the set. She was very outspoken and, you know, you could kind of always hear her presence. When I read the screenplay, I said to my agent, the fat lady gets a nomination, you know. I didn't know it was going to be Shelley. I died pretty soon. I fell down the flue <laughs> rather early. <laughs> Which I must say was one of the scariest days I ever saw because I watched the fellow who um, did that stunt and was a direct fall like 40 feet or something. The camera, she went down. And if that guy had missed, you know, uh, wow, he would have been lacerated. It was a wonderful, it was a wonderful stunt. But I didn't do it. <laughs> Thank heavens. <laughs> it was arduous, even for an 18-year-old. I can't imagine what it was like for the older members. We did swimming and climbing and running through fire, and it, it was pretty real. It wasn't <laughs> special effects. <laughs> Paul, our stunt guy, trained all of us. Uh, you know, so we knew what we had to do, and we were trained to do it. Uh, Shelley worked for two months with a scuba diver uh, at the bottom of her pool to get her breathing up. We were all taught the breathing stuff. The hardest for me was height. I am terrified of height. I mean, I can't go up a step ladder two feet off the ground. I'm sorry. I can't move. We climbed a lot on rafters with fire around, but, you know, it was all pretty set up for us not to get hurt. <laughs> it was all like clockwork, and I was talking to Red a couple of months ago, and I was saying, you know, like, nobody got hurt, nobody slipped, nobody even had a cold. And we went through hell and back making a movie. For the most of the film, we were wet and dirty and climbing around, and so that was the first part of the physicalness of it, because we were really uncomfortable. The set was upside down for the most of it. When you've got that much steam and smoke on a set, it's tiring. I remember sleeping on mattresses. It was strange. We had all kinds of stunts with fire and water and all this stuff. And I, I can remember sleeping in a corner somewhere on, a, on one of the stunt mattresses. It was difficult also because it was primarily an action film, which uh, Neem, I thought, handled masterfully. Ronald Neem was a very kind man gentle. I just remember a quiet force behind the camera and everybody else running around screaming and carrying on. Ronnie is a gentleman, an English gentleman, and he just handled us all beautifully, absolutely beautifully. This has come to be probably the most beloved picture that I've done. Poseidon was like this gigantic success, and you know, we're still talking about it, which is amazing. I think Poseidon Adventure holds a special place in history. I would say of everything that Irwin did in his life, I think he'll best be remembered for the Poseidon Adventure. I think it was, for that genre picture, I think it was the best. It was just a fabulous, fabulous picture. Poseidon Adventure is a 1972 American disaster film directed by Ronald Neem, produced by Irwin Allen, 
and based on Paul Gallico's 1969 novel of the same name. Paul Gallico was inspired to write his novel by a voyage he made on the Queen Mary. When he was having breakfast in the dining room, the liner was hit by a large wave, sending people and furniture crashing to the other side of the vessel. He was further inspired by a true incident, which occurred aboard the Queen Mary during World War II. Packed with American troops bound for Europe, the ship was struck by a gargantuan freak wave in the North Atlantic. It was calculated that if the ship had rolled another five inches, she would have capsized like the Poseidon. The Poseidon Adventure's plot centers on the fictional SS Poseidon, though the film gives very little backstory for the aging luxury liner. All that is revealed is that the Poseidon is on her last transatlantic trip from New York to Athens via Gibraltar and the Mediterranean. The choice of Athens as a destination is odd, in that most transatlantic lines that served ports in the Mediterranean usually went to either France or Italy. Additionally, no ships the size of the Poseidon ever served the Mediterranean route. Huge liners like the RMS Queen Mary, which the Poseidon is based on, and the SS Normandy served northern European ports in France and England. We learn in the film that once in Greece, the Poseidon will be scrapped. One can infer, then, that this last Christmas New Year's voyage to Athens is a celebratory way for her new owners to have one last voyage that will take her to the breakers in Greece and, in turn, make some additional money on the liner. In the novel, the Poseidon was originally the RMS Atlantis, a British transatlantic ocean liner on the Southampton-Cherbourg-New York route that has been sold to an American company that uses the liner as a combined freight and cruise ship in South American and African ports. Most likely, the Poseidon in the film has a similar backstory as a transatlantic liner to northern European ports, but the film changes the plot as to having her on her last voyage upon which she will be sold for scrap. On New Year's Eve, the Poseidon is overturned by a tsunami, which is actually a mid-ocean rogue wave. Mid-ocean rogues were previously thought to occur only once every 10,000 years, but according to a 2004 study of satellite radar images, they actually can happen as often as hundreds of times every decade. When the boat is struck and capsizes, passengers and crew are trapped inside, and a rebel preacher, Reverend Frank Scott, played by Gene Hackman, attempts to lead a small group of survivors to safety. Hackman's preacher boasted of a confused religious philosophy, which was a hybrid of Christianity, Buddhism, and New Age spiritualism. This is why his character was considered a rebel among his fellow preachers, as his beliefs do not align with biblical doctrine. The Poseidon adventure is in the vein of other all-star disaster films of the early mid-1970s, such as Airport, Earthquake, and The Towering Inferno. It was released in December of 1972 and was the highest-grossing film of 1973, earning over $125 million worldwide. It won two Academy Awards, a Golden Globe Award, a British Academy Film Award, and a Motion Picture Sound Editors Award. A sequel, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, also based on a novel by Gallico, was released in 1979. The novel was acquired by Avco Embassy in 1969, and Allen's Kent Productions signed a deal with them to make three movies, including The Poseidon Adventure. Avco Embassy cancelled the production, and it moved to 20th Century Fox, who contributed half of the budget. 
Steve Broidy and Cheryl Corwin helped finance the rest. Parts of the movie were filmed aboard the RMS Queen Mary. The score for the film was composed and conducted by John Williams. The song, The Morning After, written by Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, won the 1972 Academy Award for Best Original Song at the 45th Academy Awards in March 1973. It was performed in the film by René Armand, dubbing for Carol Lindley. A version of The Morning After, performed by Maureen McGovern, became a hit single in 1973. There was no soundtrack album at the time of the film's release. The score was first released as a CD by Film Score Monthly in July 1998. A remastered version was released by La La Land Records on April 20, 2010. La La Land Records released a second, newly remastered edition of Williams' score on December 3, 2019 as part of a box set, also including Williams' scores for Earthquake and The Towering Inferno. The Poseidon Adventure opened Tuesday, December 12, 1972, as the first film at the newly opened National Theatre in Times Square in New York City. Review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes reports that 80% of 25 critics gave the film a positive review, and the average score is 6.94 out of 10. The critical consensus reads, The Poseidon Adventure exemplifies the disaster film done right, going down smoothly with ratcheting tension and a terrific ensemble to give the peril a distressingly human dimension. Metacritic gave the film a score of 70 based on 10 reviews, indicating favorable reviews. A. H. Weiler of the New York Times wrote that though tensions slacken and credibility is strained here, realistic technical effects make the stricken ship and the efforts of its survivors to escape a fairly spellbinding adventure. Variety called the film a highly imaginative and lustily produced Miller, with some of the most exciting sequences seen in years. Gene Siskel gave the film three stars out of four, and wrote that the film's technical excellence, special effects, production design, and the stars doing their own stunts holds one's interest. The film expanded to 205 engagements by Christmas Day, with a gross to that date of $2,604,168 in the United States, which made it the number one film at the U.S. box office. It remained at number one through the New Year period, but was displaced by The Getaway for one week before returning to number one for eight consecutive weeks. It spent another two weeks at number one for a total of 12 weeks atop the box office. The film went on to earn theatrical rentals of $40 million in the United States and Canada in 1973, being the highest-grossing film of the year. The film was reissued in June 1974 and was number one at the U.S. box office in its first week. The film earned rentals of $75 million worldwide from a worldwide gross of over $125 million. When the film made its network television premiere on ABC on October 27, 1974, it earned a Nielsen rating of 39.0 and an audience share of 62%, making it the sixth highest-rated film to ever air on network television. It also aired later on Turner Classic Movies. Once this film's theatrical run was over, ABC paid $1 million for the television rights. At that time, it was the most money a network had ever paid for a film's broadcast rights. The film was presented pan and scan in the standard 4-3 television ratio, which was the norm. 
Decades later, it was restored to its correct original widescreen ratio. The film won a Special Academy Award for Visual Effects and an Academy Award for Best Original Song for the song from The Poseidon Adventure, also known as The Morning After. Shelley Winters won the Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress in a Motion Picture and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role. It also received nominations for the Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture Drama and for the Best Original Score by John Williams. A 1979 sequel, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which was also based on a novel by Gallico, was released later with an equally star-studded cast. The Poseidon Adventure has been remade twice, first as a television special in 2005 with the same name, and as a theatrical release titled Poseidon in 2006. Exploring the cast Shelley Winters Even though her character is presented as an elderly, retired woman, Shelley Winters was actually only 51 years old when the film was made. Ernest Borgnine was really three years older than Winters, despite the fact that his character treats her like an old woman. She gained 35 pounds for the part of Belle Rosen. Afterwards, she complained that she was never able to get back to her original weight, no matter how hard she tried. She trained with an Olympic swim coach so that her character, who was a former award-winning swimmer, would come across more realistically in the underwater scenes. Stella Stevens In a 1994 interview, Stevens said that she had hated working with Shelley Winters in the film The Mad Room so much, she swore she'd never work with her again. Winters had been under a lot of stress because Robert Kennedy was shot during the filming of it, and she had a very bad reaction to his death. She began soothing her nerves with white wine and was drunk most of the time. A year later, Stevens was cast in this role, and soon found out Winters had been cast too. She told the producers she wasn't going to do the film. When they told her she wouldn't have to do any scenes one-on-one -on -one with Winters, Stevens agreed to do it, and she was glad she did. Winters wasn't drinking anymore, and this time, they got along just fine. After she was cast as Linda Rogo, Erwin Allen asked Stella if she'd read the Poseidon Adventure novel that the film was based on. When Stevens replied no, Alan urged her not to read it, saying everyone hated the Linda character in the book and he wanted her film version of the character to be likable. Stevens later said in a 2006 interview that when she first read the script, she could tell by the writing that whichever actress played the fat lady, Belle in the movie, would end up getting an Oscar nomination, and she was right. The role went to Shelley Winters, and she received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. In a 2006 interview, Stella Stevens said working on this film was a lot of fun, and that Ronald Neem was a wonderful, amazing, and talented director, and a delightful man with a great sense of humor. So, no matter how tough the work was, the cast did absolutely everything they could. She also said he used to go to some of the Venture Fan Club autograph luncheons she attended to sign pictures of him on the set. Then he would donate all the money he made to his favorite charity. Gene Hackman The original script called for Reverend Scott to send Mrs. Rosen on her underwater mission, and for her to be trapped, needing to be rescued by him. Gene Hackman decided that his character would never ask her to do this, and suggested their character situations be reversed. Director Ronald Neem agreed, and they persuaded Shelley Winters that this was indeed better for her character. An ending scene showing rescue boats surrounding the sinking ship was originally planned, but the budget ran out. The shot of the helicopter lifting off the hull with the six survivors was done on the studio lot, 
looking upward to avoid seeing the surrounding buildings. During an interview with Johnny Carson, Gene Hackman said he was contacted about appearing in the sequel film to The Poseidon Adventure. Hackman reminded them that his character was killed off in the last five minutes of the film. He was told that they would work around that, to which Hackman replied, well, I don't think so. Reportedly, one of the ideas was for Hackman's character in the sequel to be Reverend Scott's twin brother. Speaking of his on-screen death, reportedly, Gene Hackman fought to perform his stunt where the Reverend Scott lets go of the valve wheel and drops into the flaming pool of water. In fact, Hackman pushed to do all of the stunts for his character himself. However, since he still had additional scenes to shoot after Scott's death scene, the filmmakers weren't willing to take the risk of their leading actor being injured in the stunt and denied him the opportunity. They allowed him to perform the first part of the drop, seen from a distance, when Scott lets go of the valve wheel and drops out of frame. But the jump cut to Scott falling into the flaming water and disappearing was performed by a stuntman. In regards to Scott's instant death upon hitting the water being realistic, as generally injured and exhausted as Scott may have been previously, he likely also had just lost his ability to swim with his arms effectively due to fatigue and severe burns to his hands. Additionally, he had just sustained probable heat damage to his lungs, being in close proximity to scalding steam and air temperatures while attempting to close the valve, on top of having recently nearly drowned. Therefore, his death is not at all improbable. Ernest Borgnine According to Ernest Borgnine and director Ronald Neem, Shelley Winters loved playing gin rummy. To keep her occupied during breaks in filming, Jack Albertson, who played her husband, would play gin rummy with her. According to Borgnine, Albertson ended up winning $260,000 from Winters. Both Borgnine and Neem said that Albertson never got paid. This may explain why Albertson claimed for many years after filming that his happiest moment during the film was when Winters' character was killed off and he no longer had to work with her anymore. Borgnine said his favorite scene to shoot during Poseidon was Rogo's violent breakdown immediately following Linda's death. Sometime in the early 2000s, the American Archive of Television interviewed Ernest Borgnine and discussed various aspects of his career. At one point in the discussion, Borgnine's experiences during the Poseidon adventure was touched on. The next five minutes of audio are Borgnine's lovely memories from the production. Poseidon adventure... It was a hard one. First of all, uh, it was all very well at the beginning, you know, and making characters and stuff like that, and going along, and uh, we were having a gay time on New Year's Eve, and here we go, you know, and, and suddenly we're, bam, turned over. And <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> uh, it got rough. It got rough. Uh, it got to the point where we had to take a shower as you just before walking into the set, you know, because you had to be wet. Mm. And uh, it wasn't the nicest of things. Uh, it was almost a, a, a wonder, a, you know, wonderful way to, to finish a day to come out and, and smell the smog out there in the, in, in the Los Angeles area because you're smelling smog all day long out there in the, in the middle of that set. It wasn't the easiest thing in the world it, by any means. And of course, um, we used to get on each other's nerves, I'm sure, I'm sure somehow or other we did. 
But um, uh, so they, Shelley was playing cards with uh, with uh, one most wonderful actor, and I can't remember their names now, unfortunately. But uh, and so she lost about two hundred and sixty thousand dollars to this man. But <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the Whom script. She never paid. No, 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 no. no. It was no for it was real. Off, off, off the set, you know. And Shelley Winters, we're talking. Shelley Winters. But we all had our laughs, you know, and we used to make the best of it. And uh, we had a wonderful director. Uh, I, I, and I, I can't remember his name either, but a wonderful British director. And, you know, this picture almost didn't become made for the simple reason that there was a new man came in at, uh, at the 20th Century Fox, and um, uh, our direct, our producer, Irwin Allen, had gone to pay his respects to this new man at the, at the helm of 20th Century Fox. And he said, and you know, I have $2 million, and we're all set, and we got all our things ready to go. And the fellow looked at him and said, no, 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 we're not going to make the film. No, we're not going to, we're going to, you know, no, we don't need that. We're going to start something else altogether. And Irwin said, but sir, he said, I got all my money tied up in it. And, you know, oh, no, no, that's okay. But no, we're not going to make it. So Irwin back, went back to his office, and he's crying. And the director said, well, what, what are you crying about? And they told him. He said, tell me, do you have any whiskey? He said, we got whiskey. What, what, what do you want whiskey for at a time like that? He said, let's have a belt. We'll go back and talk to him. <laughs> we had a belt. They went back and talked to him. Finally, this fellow said, all right, he said, you put $6 million on my table here tomorrow morning as we'll make the film. Well, Irwin Allen called two people. And he said, okay, go ahead and make the film. Now, we finished the film. And one day we're over at Chasen's. We're having a big party. And he's there this producers there and the head of the 20th Century Fox. Everybody's there. And Tova, my wife, speaks up and said, you know, I've been watching this picture and it's going to make well over $200 million. Everybody blanched. <laughs> Especially the poor producer who had only taken local, you know. <laughs> the lowest salary. Yeah, that's it. And it let everything else go. And sure enough, it became one of the highest, highest uh, makers of money you ever saw in your life. And that was the funny part of it. It really, it was wonderful. And they sent us out on a, on a trip, Tova and I. They sent us to Europe to, you know, to talk about the film. We went everywhere, Spain and Norway and England. And, and we just blasted it all over the place, you know. And it was marvelous, just, you know, everybody took it to their heart. And I've often spoken of, about the Poseidon Adventure on ships. They invite me to go aboard, you know, and, and talk about my pictures and everything else. And one of them, naturally, is Poseidon Adventure. And people say, do we actually have to show this picture while we're on this? <laughs> it became that, that good, you know. Roddy McDowell. 
And Roddy McDowell. And I worked with Roddy. him three times. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. yeah. I worked with Roddy like 12 times. He, it was so bad that he'd come into makeup and he'd say, oh, God, not you Not again. you again. <laughs> he was wonderful. Absolutely yes, he was. Wonderful. Very yeah. bright. Very. One of the first people to actually collect 16-millimeter yes. prints of everything he did. Yes. He had a great collection. Uh, he's given it to, oh, he willed it to, uh, I think, a, a museum in uh, Texas. Ah. Uh, and had a fantastic collection. Reverend Scott! Who is it? It's me, Sir Akers. Could you help me down? I've injured my leg. Are you all fixed up there, Akers? Poor Roddy. Yes, doomed from the start. Yes, he didn't have a chance on Not that movie. Not a chance. <laughs> he said he wanted to be in it. He just wanted to be part of it, because it's actually a smaller part than he usually played. But... It was a very good part, yeah. though, and he is remembered well and... Loved. Yes. By everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Yes. Everyone. You climb up inside as far as you can go, and then come outside and Mr. Akers will give you a hand. Okay? No sweat. Akers, you first. I need you. Rogo, give him a hand. Uh, Rogo, Rogo, Rogo. Mr. Rogo, put this around his waist. Uh, All right. Roddy's limp does seem to come and go a bit. Well, well, gonna know, go for so. good soon. <laughs> I think what I don't like about you, Scott, is your attitude. Or does it go deeper than that? Maybe we're two of a kind, Mr. Rogo. And you don't like looking at yourself. Through those doors, Akers? Oh, oh no, sir, no, no, that's uh, the cruise galley, sir. It's, uh, it's that way, sir. Get the rest of them. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you, sir. Hi, right, grab a hold of this. Thank you. I'm surprised these lights are still working. On an emergency circuit, sir, and batteries. Supposed to stay operational for three hours. Well, they'd better. is no other exit from this section, sir. There's got to be. Think. Uh, uh, Mr. Akers, would you mind, please? Yes, sir. Come along. We don't want to lose the others. Yeah, that, I remember this right little tunnel me. was quite claustrophobic. Like two peas in a pot. Quickly. Now, in this scene, we were actually climbing in an Ooh, all I see of right that, up, uh, right up my Ooh, kazoo there. Kazoo. But there's a, a point where I can't go on any further, and I am actually afraid of heights, I keep saying, but uh, I, I freeze. And um, we shot the close-up, my close-up on, on the soundstage, uh, and I was standing on an apple box, which is, <laughs> is literally about a foot off the ground. And Red is sort of like crouched down beneath me, so it looks like he's on the ladder below me. And Ernie was lying on his back saying, go on, you can do it. You know, uh -oh, goodbye, Roddy. Oh, no. There goes Roddy, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I was on the apple box. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it cut together very well, It cut dear. together very yes, well. Yes, it did. I always wondered where Roddy went when he went down to the... <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know where he went. 
nowhere you'd want to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Now, Roddy McDowell, who you just saw uh, on the uh, uh, upper deck there. Roddy, I am known ever since he was eight years old. In fact, when I was a cameraman, I photographed Ron, Roddy McDowell in a film at the age of eight. And so I knew this man all his life, and I loved him very much. He was a, an absolute sweetheart, and he died much, much too young. But bless him, I, I'm, I, I'm delighted to be able to say something about him now, because he was great and a sweetheart. He was a great actor, very, very underestimated, in my opinion. He never became a, a, a star, star, but maybe that's because he was an actor as opposed to a star. And I think being an actor is more important than being a star. But he did play in, uh, was it The Planet of the Apes, I think? And um, he was well known and well thought of by everybody. In fact, you know, there are very few people of whom I have never heard a bad word. And I've never heard a bad word about Roddy. Everybody liked him. That must say something about the man. Roddy McDowell's character, Akers, was a Scotsman. And this was perfect casting, as Roddy's own nationality was Scots-Irish. However, having been raised in London till 1941, and then living in America from the age of 12, the then 43-year-old McDowell had lost most of his natural accent, and his speaking voice had become more transatlantic British. If you listen carefully during the film, his accent changes from Scottish to Irish, and occasionally he slips back to his English-American accent. Some people find this to be a problem. However, we McDowell fans are enchanted with his accents and couldn't care less that it changes throughout the film. Cinematographer Ronald Neem Neem first met Roddy McDowell on one of his first acting jobs, and the two remained friends for the rest of McDowell's life. Neem worked as the cinematographer on a film called Murder in the Family in 1938, in which Roddy starred alongside the then 13-year-old actress Glynis Johns, and a 29-year-old Jessica Tandy. Roddy is well known for befriending most everyone he worked with, and Tandy and Johns are no exception to this rule. He remained friends with them for many, many years. Jessica Tandy remained friends with him until her death in 1994, and Roddy passed away in 1998. Ronald Neem outlived Roddy by 12 years. Neem passed away at the age of 99 in 2010. Glennis Johns, happily, remains among the living. She is 98 years old and has been retired from acting since 1999. Red Buttons and Carol Lindley Buttons and Lindley's characters supposedly fall in love during the course of the movie, but actually disliked each other intensely during filming. They refused to have anything to do with each other except when the cameras were rolling. Ironically, after being constantly reminded of this, they ended up becoming great friends in later years. 
Both Lindley and Pamela Sue Martin were with Buttons at the time of his final public appearance, the world premiere of Poseidon at Mann's Chinese Theater in May 2006. Lindley's character, Noni Perry, has no audible dialogue for the first 32 minutes of the film. Everything prior to that is her character singing to various songs. Her first audible spoken line is after the Poseidon capsizes and she calls her brother's character name Teddy. The sequence where Noni rehearses the morning after with her bandmates was the first scene to be filmed. Originally, guitarist Wadi Watchell was to be cast as Lindley's brother, but Watchell had brown eyes and Lindley was blue-eyed. Drummer Stuart Perry was cast as Noni's brother instead of Watchell. Carol said producer Irwin Allen approached her during the filming and shared his idea for a sequel, which would show the six surviving stars, Albertson, Buttons, Borgnine, Lindley, Martin, and Shea, aboard a train for Switzerland to testify on the disaster in front of a commission. Along the way, Allen said they would pick up other stars as passengers. Allen specifically named Yule Brynner and Ava Gardner. En route, the train would become trapped in a cave-in, and the returning and new cast would have to battle their way out to the surface again. Lindley said she was excited to do it, but it never materialized, and Alan ended up returning to the Poseidon with an entirely new cast for the actual sequel. Other interesting film facts. In her autobiography, Esther Williams disclosed that she was offered the role of Belle Rosen before Shelley Winters by producer Irwin Allen, who believed her real-life aquatic skill would lead poignancy and authenticity to the film's climactic underwater sequence, wherein Belle rescues Scott. As much as Williams desired to take on the assignment, her husband Fernando Lamas essentially forbade it because she had gained so much weight in retirement and would photograph unflatteringly. Ironically, as Williams herself noted, Belle was supposed to be a former swimming champion who had let herself go. In retrospect, she admitted that Lamas was controlling throughout their turbulent marriage and that she wished she had followed her own instincts. As the actress performed more and more stunts throughout the production, director Ronald Neems said that they soon began to get competitive with each other, and each one kept trying to not be outdone by the other. Actor Ernest Borgnine admitted that there was a sense of excitement leading up to the start of filming the stunts, but occasionally there were moments during and after where he questioned whether he should actually be doing them. Still, Borgnine and others have stated many times that everything was carefully done and that no one got hurt. This was mostly due to the careful direction of Irwin Allen, who would consistently pause before, during, and after stunt takes to ensure the absolute safety of all the actors and stunt performers throughout the production. This was captured on film during the making of Featurette, which accompanied this film on the DVD. Irwin Allen shot the film in sequence, taking advantage of the fact that the principals would become dirtier and more tattered as they suffered injuries, some real and some artificial, as they progressed through the ship. Except for the most dangerous sequences, all of the stunts were done by the actors themselves. All the actors at one point complained to the production staff about how difficult the shoot was physically. It is said that 125 stunt people were used during the filming, and though no one was killed or injured, IMDb only has 53 of them listed. All but one are uncredited. The famous interior capsizing sequence was done in two parts. The first part had the hydraulically controlled set tilted to its maximum 45 degrees. The cameras were then stopped and the set was redressed so that the floor, deck, became the ceiling overhead and vice versa. The actors were then returned to the set, which was then tilted further to complete the sequence. 
Some of the pre-capsizing sequences were shot aboard the Queen Mary, including the opening storm sequence, and the pre-disaster scenes in the staterooms and hallways, the scenes above decks, and an early scene in the engine room. The set for the banquet hall was designed so that very few objects needed to be moved from the floor to the ceiling, and vice versa. The columns along the walls were identical at the top and the bottom, and the wall decorations were all removable. Most of the exterior shots of the Poseidon were shot using a large miniature built from the original blueprints of the Queen Mary. The model is on display at the Los Angeles Maritime Museum at the Los Angeles Harbor. The real Queen Mary is located just a few miles away in Long Beach. Filming was delayed twice due to cost. In addition to oceans of red ink incurred by its television division, ironically from high-budget shows produced by Irwin Allen, 20th Century Fox was also suffering from losses from several big-budget musicals undertaken in the wake of the studio's enormous success with The Sound of Music, Dr. Doolittle, Star, and Hello, Dolly. As spectacles were being trounced by smaller character-driven films, and the studio was nervous about disaster movies' prospects, especially when produced by Allen. Fox finally relented when Allen promised to raise half of the budget himself. Reportedly, Allen found outside backers by crossing Pico Boulevard from Fox's main gate to the nearby Hillcrest Country Club, where he found some friends playing cards. During the card game, Allen cajoled them into backing his film. Because the studio never spent any of the backers' money, the backers made a tidy profit from the success of the film without actually spending a dime. The film received eight competitive nominations and was awarded a non-competitive Special Achievement Oscar for visual effects. It also won Best Original Song for the Morning After. Random Film Trivia When Robin jokes about almost dying in the John, his sister says, what a stupid way to die going to the John. This is an homage to the novel, as Robin is last heard from when he goes to the bathroom. In the scene in which Reverend Scott rescues Robin on his way back from the John, the set was built on tracks which would slowly lower the inclined set into a large water tank. The set was supposed to stop moving once the set was half submerged, but for some reason it continued until the camera crew was underwater. The film magazine was rushed to the lab where immediate processing showed the film was undamaged. While waiting for Reverend Scott, Mr. Rogo jokes that the others should break out their hymnals and sing Nearer My God to Thee. That song was sung by the crew and passengers of the SS Valencia as it sank, and was allegedly the final song the band of the RMS Titanic played as it went down. Part of the set was built on a hydraulic system, which would raise it to a 45-degree angle, and camera tricks were used to suggest even more severe angles. At the beginning of the film, when the Christmas tree is put into position to use as a ladder to climb to the next deck, Gene Hackman tells both Stella Stevens and Pamela Sue Martin, who are wearing floor-length gowns, that they can't climb the tree in their long dresses and they need to take them off, which they do without hesitation. Some people have complained that this is mere sexism on display because Gene Hackman says nothing to Shelley Winters, who is also wearing a dress, about having to take hers off. Winter's dress, however, was not a floor-length gown. Though it came down below her knees, she could still easily climb, and later in the film, is even able to swim in it effortlessly. The assumption, then, that Hackman's character insisting Martins and Stevens remove their dresses is simply for showing off shapely legs is therefore invalidated. Dialogue between former policeman Mike Rogo and his wife Linda, a former prostitute, 
reveals that he arrested her multiple times to keep her off the street until he could convince her to marry him. This had a real precedent, whether author Paul Gallico knew it or not. The Associated Press reported on Wednesday, 17th November 1954, that Inspector John O'Hare of the San Francisco Police Department's vice squad had married Mary Frances Madsen, whom he had arrested eight months before as a call girl. The department stated that it was the inspector's own life and no regulations had been violated. The cast of The Poseidon Adventure includes five Oscar winners, Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Shelley Winters and Jack Albertson, and one Oscar nominee, Arthur O'Connell. Several members of the cast were close friends with Roddy McDowell and worked with him on more than one occasion, two of whom were Stella Stevens and Carol Lindley. Roddy's friendship with the other cast members is unknown to me. Stella worked with Roddy a total of four times, first in The Poseidon Adventure, then later in the schlocky made-for-TV horror flick Arnold in 1973. Stevens and McDowell would not work together again until 1979, when they both appeared as crooked psychologists running a fake retreat used as a front for a massive kidnapping organization in the pilot for Heart to Heart, which starred two other besties of Roddy's, Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers. Another Roddy bestie made a cameo on the pilot, Robert Wagner's wife, Natalie Wood. McDowell and Stevens would unite on screen one last time in the science fiction schlock film Star Hunter in 1996 with Roddy playing the villain yet again. Carol Lindley first worked with Roddy in the 1964 thriller Shock Treatment, where she played love interest to Stuart Whitman, and Roddy, of course, played the baddie. Next was The Poseidon Adventure in 1972, TV movie The Elevator in 1974, Flood in 1976, another disaster film, Roddy only had a cameo at the beginning of the movie, Judgment Day in 1981, which is sadly now one of the many lost titles from Roddy's vast career, and finally, two episodes of Fantasy Island in 1980 and 1982, the most notable of these being The Devil and Mandy Bream from Season 4, where Lindley brilliantly plays Mandy to McDowell's epic Mephistopheles. In 1985, Red Buttons, Ernest Borgnine, Roddy McDowell, and Shelley Winters would star again together in Irwin Allen's Alice in Wonderland. Buttons played the White Rabbit, McDowell was the March Hare, Borgnine was the Lion, and Winters was the Dodo Bird. Differences between the book and the film Due to the length of the novel, several characters were dropped completely from the movie or had elements of their characters merged into the characters who made it into the film. Characters who were dropped include passengers Miss Kinsale, Hubie Mueller, the Beamer and his companion Pamela, and Susan and Robin's parents Richard and Jane Shelby. Also, there was a second steward named Peters, and Akers was known as Aker. A final member was Kamal, part of the ship's engineering crew. Mueller's arc, the man who protects Noni in the book, was transferred to the character of James Martin. Miss Kinsale's attraction to Reverend Scott was transferred to Susan Shelby. Peters and Aker were combined to the Akers character, The novel was also much darker than the film. Robin disappears during a blackout and is never found before the ship sinks. While searching for Robin, Susan is assaulted by a terrified crew member who mistakes her for a female crew member in the dark. Acre and Peters don't accompany Scott's party, as Acre has a broken leg and Peters refuses to leave him. Other than Robin, the characters who are killed off in the film also die in the novel, but in a different order. 
Scott is much more ruthless in the novel, basically abandoning anyone who isn't fit during the attempt to reach the hull. This was drastically toned down in the film, in order to make him a leader audiences could root for. Some of the more memorable scenes where Rogo and Linda, or Rogo and Scott, argue, can't be found in the novel. Rogo constantly needles Scott, but Scott never raises his voice to Rogo in return. As for Linda, she's very verbally abusive towards Rogo, but unlike his film counterpart, Rogo almost always attempts to placate her, though at one point he strikes her and is immediately apologetic. Also in the novel, the survivors have to wait for a while before they are rescued from the hull. The bow group of passengers survive in the novel and look very little the worse for wear, which makes the survivors in Scott's group question whether they were right to follow him, rather than join the group escaping from the bow. And at the end of the novel, of course, the Poseidon sinks. While regarded as an antagonist, Lenarcos's refusal to allow Captain Harrison to take on ballast may have unwittingly saved lives. The massive tidal wave would have swamped the ship whether it was top-heavy or not. Had it been full of ballast, the water would likely have crashed down on the dining room survivors and may have caused the ship to immediately sink. However, if Harrison had been allowed to slow down and take on ballast, the tidal wave may have passed ahead of them. While it may have saved lives, Lenarcos is hardly a hero, because his refusal to allow Harrison to take on ballast was purely for financial reasons. To this day, The Poseidon Adventure still remains one of the best-loved disaster films ever made, and has one of the largest followings in disaster film history. The impressions made upon viewers over the years are varied and extensive, but the impression remains the same. The Poseidon Adventure is a classic. For the remaining time we have today, I will be joined once again by our dear friend Albert Burge to discuss the film. But before Albie comes on, I would like to share with you the making of featurette from the DVD accompanying this film. There is a new trend in Hollywood movie making. Fewer sets, fewer stars, lower budgets. This is a report on one film that goes against that trend. The Return of the Movie Movie, a behind-the-scenes report on Irwin Allen's The Poseidon Adventure. At midnight on New Year's Eve, the luxury liner SS Poseidon, en route from New York to Athens, is hit by a 90-foot tidal wave. Oh, my God. And capsized. Of the 1,400 people on board, only six will survive. May we have a key light on Stella Stevens, please? Here on this soundstage at the 20th Century Fox Studios, a cast and crew of over 400 skilled technicians and performers are at work on one of the most complicated and elaborate films ever made. This is the Grand Salon of the SS Poseidon. We open up the story in this room in the um, New Year's Eve celebration. And it's at that time, almost really right on the dot, that the wave hits and the whole ship 
turns upside down. And this room uh, is one of the few rooms that, that are not submerged in water, but of course the ship is settling in the water. The survivors in this room, which there are very few really, are in a quandary about what to do. May I have your attention, please? That's the way out. That's our only chance. Don't listen to him! We've got to stay here till help arrives. Help from where? From the captain? He's dead. Everybody's dead who was above us before the ship turned over. Because now they're underneath us, under the water. That's not true! What do you need to produce a film of such spectacular proportions as the Poseidon Adventure? First, you need a good script, rich in detail and characterization. Then you need a strong director with years of experience, like Ronald Neen. You need a powerful producer with courage and imagination, like Irwin Allen. And of course, you need stars. I've got a cast of ten people, ten lovely people, who really have to go through, well, to put it mildly, hell great heights and some of them are not very fond of heights and they have to go through fire they have to go through water they have to go through steam they have to get dirtier and dirtier and more and more bruised and more and more burnt and uh, the very physical problem of taking ten very important actors and actresses through such a grueling experience is already enough to make it the toughest film I've made you'd be astonished at how much of the really, really tough work the, the, uh, the, the stars have done themselves. Nani, you all right? I'm sorry. I can't move. I can't. You know, I think it's always interesting if, a, if an actor can do whatever he can do to make it more exciting for an audience. I can't, I'm a very good swimmer. Johnny Weissmuller taught me to swim years ago in Brooklyn. Uh, but I want to practice underwater swimming. I did give a solemn warning to every member of the cast. I said, now look, before the film is over, you're all gonna hate my guts, but I can't help it. Linda! Action sequences are very difficult to film, especially when the action is dangerous. On a production the size of the Poseidon Adventure, there are many more people behind the camera than in front. Here at the daily production meeting, Sir Irwin Allen and the key members of his staff discuss the problems of each day's shooting. Always present is art director Bill Krieber. This picture for a production designer has been both a nightmare and a dream. A nightmare just because of the nature of it, the upside-down sets, the lighting, any hint that we can give that the ship is upside down. The, the dream, of course, is uh, the opportunity to have a picture like this to work on comes along just once in a career. Please, you know, which is a very good thing. Here, stunt coordinator Paul Stater works with producer Irwin Allen in preparing one of the most exciting sequences in the picture. Is there somebody, a woman, that could fall in here? Would you raise your hand? Those that are going to get killed, raise your hand. Owen Allen has, as a producer, a tremendous drive, stamina, and tremendous determination. 
He also, of course, has had experience as a director. And I know that if he says such and such a thing is going to be done and will be ready for you to shoot, I know it's going to be ready. I don't want anybody to run any risk of being hurt. What we're going to do yeah. of primary concern to producer Allen is the potential danger to the cast and crew. Okay, so that no one is in danger, is that That's right? right. That's right. Not one chance in 10 million. I don't think there's one chance in 10 million. Okay. He's very dynamic, Irwin. And he's gotten this movie together at a time when they just don't make movies like this anymore. And people, I say I'm doing a film, and they say, oh, yes. And, and they say, oh, yeah, but wait a minute, I'm really doing a film, you know? And I start telling them about the people in the film and what we're going to do and the shooting schedule. And their eyes get bigger and bigger. And the... well, let's go make a rehearsal. Yeah, huh? let's make a rehearsal. You're all been marvelous. Just be patient a little while longer. I'll have you out in a minute. And the five ADs and ten hairdressers, you know. Now, at this point, it will be the first explosion, and you will run. Now, where will it be? They're not going to just take a bucket and throw the water in your face. You know, it's going to be a wall, even on the set. Shoot it. It's got to be uh, a very big wall of water. Let me hear speed, gentlemen. B camera. You are now milling about and concerned. The scene is shot by four carefully placed cameras. So when all of the camera angles are edited together, it looks like this. Yeah, one of the big problems about this film is that, that the hardware could get in the way of the people. And to quote Frank Capra in his autobiography, people really and truly are interested in people. Now, all you people that are here, Kaleidoscope Films wishes to thank the people of the Poseidon Adventure. Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Carol Lindley, Rodney McDowell, Stella Stevens, Shelley Winters, Jack Albertson, Arthur O'Connell, Leslie Nielsen, producer Irwin Allen, director Ronald Neen, and the hundreds of artists and technicians for their cooperation in filming this report. With special thanks to 20th Century Fox, for scenes from Irwin Allen's The Poseidon Adventure. Let's go down to the bottom slowly. Move around a little to your right, dear. All right, hold it quiet. Here we go. Straight away. Herman. And now, without further ado, here's Albie. Silly. That was last time? Okay. No, we are talking about the Poseidon Adventure today. Oh, we're in luck, because I just, just finished watching that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Third or fourth time in my lifetime. Really? Only that many? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a great film, but uh, I don't see like watch disaster films too often, because I get too too traumatized by them, too yeah. like, sad. Totally understand that. Why as humans do we like to just sit uh, and watch a movie about horrible things happening? We're gluttons for punishment, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Great film, though. Yes, definitely. And probably one of the most um, 
loved and the one that has the most longevity of the majority of them. Great cast too. Oh my goodness. Top to bottom. I mean, it was stunt casting all around. It was like the Avengers of seventies disaster films. Right. Yeah. Gene Hackman. I think this was his movie out of anybody. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's still alive. Uh, 92, I think. Wow. God bless him. Yeah, I asked my uh, Echo Dot a lot of questions during this movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm not normally someone who would gravitate to a Gene Hackman film. I mean, he's a fantastic actor. Mm. I've seen a lot of his movies, but he's not somebody that I would normally go for a rewatch on. But for some reason, it's different with this movie. It's very much his picture and he leads it and he plays it very well. And he gives it a lot of credibility. and. He definitely, I think, I think he was the the best choice for the lead for this one. Are we spoiling the film? Is is this in the spoiler section? Have people uh, watched the film at this point in the podcast? I'm assuming that they probably would do because basically all of my podcasts are spoilers. So sounds good. (laughs) I can't, I didn't remember him dying, even though I'd seen it like two or three times before. Really shocks me. Yeah. I forgot about it too. I, um, I think the last time I watched this movie all the way through was when I actually got it, which was about like four years ago now. So this last time when I rewatched it and he died at the end, I was like, oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> I didn't remember I was that part. I trying to figure out why he died. I know dramatically why he died because, you know, just, uh, you know, he's a great sacrifice and all. But I was like, why did he die? Why did he have to die? In the notes, they basically said that A... He had almost drowned already, so he was probably a little bit weak. Um, okay. He had I can an, see that. He was burning his hands on that wheel. The steam. Yes. Right. Um, so probably if they did that today, like you would, his skin would already be off his hands. Right. And yeah. um, he had inhaled quite a lot of the smoke and stuff and fumes right. and things, so his lung function was probably really deteriorated. And at that point, after all the things he had been through, he had been injured, he had been leading everybody through the boat, all this kind of stuff, they figured that most likely his body just probably gave out and he might have been trying to swing up to safety and just couldn't make it, and boom. Yeah. And true, and then he landed in water. Yeah, the surface was on fire. Yeah. But underneath, probably not so much. So he probably could have, I don't know, I still wait. Unless he landed where Linda landed, in which case then he's toast, but. Yes, maybe he'll make it next time I watch the film. <laughs> maybe. Um, uh, The Shelly Winters part gets me every time. Oh gosh, yeah, for sure. Every time. Uh, when I, I when I was a kid, I saw that and I just cried. And now I get a, like, beclamped, but I don't cry. But yeah. Man. I feel like Mrs. Rosen didn't get a large enough story arc. I feel like they could have done more with her because she was. She was so good. I mean, everybody basically has an equal story arc. To be fair, since we're talking about people who deserve larger story arcs, Roddy McDowell needed a larger story arc. Right. Yeah, he was out early. Yeah, he was the first one to I'm die of the of the team. Yeah, I wasn't emotionally really that invested in his death because it was just so quick and sudden and he disappeared and right. that was it. I think it's the Shelley Winters part is because you have that whole death scene. Yeah, and like she rescued Scott right beforehand, and then, you know, 
she's like, oh, well, in the water, I'm a skinny woman. And, you know, you think she's going to be fine. And then, boom, heart attack. And it's like, wait, what's happening? Hold on. What? Ah, no. But she, uh, without her, they wouldn't have got through. Exactly. Giant Christmas tree. Which, by the way, that Christmas tree is stupidly huge. It is. It's the perfect height. And it's made yes. out of ladder. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, I've never known any other uh, Christmas tree that structurally sound. But yeah. they're on a ship, so I don't know. The cinematography in this movie was really good. I, I loved all the shots. I've been studying cinematography lately. That's my newest hobby. Ooh. And uh, I liked I liked how uh, everything was shot. I, I liked the fact that even... I, it looked like the stages were on gimbals because they were tilting at points. Uh, but even when they weren't like moving, the just the slight movement of the camera back and forth to give you the feeling that they're on the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty good. Another thing about the Poseidon Adventure, Grandpa Joe. Yes. From Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And he starts off laying down on the lounge chair, and I was like, "Is this all this guy does is sleep and yeah. lay down?" <laughs> Is that in his contract? He's just in a lounge chair. Of course, later on in the film, he's he's up walking his head around on pipes and, and going underwater and stuff. So not too much different from what he did in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Well, actually, pretty similar. <laughs> pretty similar. He should have he should have returned the candy at the end to one of the people that rescued him. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so. But uh, I I couldn't I couldn't watch the film and not think of him from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory like the whole time. It kind of took me out of it. What what we really should talk about now, because he's coming up, is Roddy. Yeah. His story arc is coming up here, short-lived. Yeah, you only see him as a waiter for a short time in the little dining room scene before he becomes one of the team. Yes. You know what I noticed about Roddy McDowell in this movie that I didn't realize before? He's a small guy. Yes. Like, either that or Gene Hackman is just huge. Well, Gene Hackman is huge. Um, But yeah, Roddy was only 5'10". Um, so he was average height and he was built very slightly, but for that slight frame that he had, dudes got muscles because he was a dancer. He did ballroom dancing. So he was very strong and Cleopatra, you know, you can see all the muscles in his thighs. Dude was just Mm -hmm. built. Well, dancers, they're just one huge muscle. Yeah. Roddy very definitely was one huge muscle. So despite the fact that, you know, he was kind of a short string bean, he was still pretty formidable if push came to shove. Yeah, I think it was the shot where uh, Gene Hackman and uh, Roddy McDowell are walking through some corridor and they're just next to each other. And I was, it was just like such a huge difference. You couldn't hide it with an Apple box or a camera angle, you know? So I was like, wow, one of those is a different height than I always imagined. Yeah. So where do you think this fits in in uh, Roddy McDowell's career as uh, film-wise? That's kind of a hard one because there's so many of them. I mean, the 70s were gigantic for Roddy. There pretty much were not many films that he did in the 70s that didn't end up becoming gigantic blockbusters that people still remember. Because right after he did this, he went on The Legend of Hell House. So as far as, like, importance to me goes, this is a... This is a pretty huge movie. Even though it wasn't a huge role for him, Acre still leaves a mark on you. You can't not get through the movie without just being like absolutely destroyed when he falls down that shaft. Yeah. 
it's sad. It's, yes. he, he, it's it's almost too soon, and you feel like he should be with the group for longer, you yeah, know? Yeah, no, almost about it, particularly because of how well he knows the boat. He could have been an asset to them, and once he dies, they're basically just figuring it out on their own. What was the young kid's name? Robin. Yeah, uh, luckily he had uh, he was obsessed with the ship's plans and had been on a tour and stuff. Yeah, he he knew all of the inner workings as well. So he he kind of took up where Acres left off. But um, yeah, well, when he fell, uh, I thought Ernest Borgnine jumped in and went to go save him. Yeah, he did. And he just comes crawling back up without him. So I don't know. I kind of feel like. That was a little bit unfair, though, because if Ernest Borgnine could have been able to go back down there and come back up, why couldn't Roddy? <laughs> yeah, it seems very mm, because movie. Yeah. And I think really it probably was very because movie because, you know, Roddy specifically wanted Acres. And I mean, I even in the book, Acres was not necessarily a huge part. It was a small part. Have you read the book? I haven't, but in the research, they discussed it, the differences between okay. the movie and the film. And in the book, Akers doesn't even go with Scott's party. He stays with the people in the dining room that drowned because his leg was broken. Yeah, his leg looked pretty bad. I, I liked what he did in the movie because without him, they couldn't have climbed up the Christmas tree. Right, exactly. And then never would have gotten to you know the whole story so without him the movie is nowhere but it's a very important part acres despite the fact that it's a very small part so it meant something to roddy and he probably had to go shoot legend of hell house pretty much right away after this so that would explain why he had to die so soon what year did that come out 1973 okay what year did planet of the apes come out the first one was like 76 78 i'm trying to think the very first Planet of the Apes movie came out in 68. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Wow. So that was before this. Yes, okay. mu much before. So um, they had done Escape to the Planet of the Apes the year before they did Poseidon Adventure. Have you ever seen the remake of Poseidon Adventure? What was it, 2000 or something? 2006. 20? I have not. I saw it once. It was okay, but it's not the same. Yeah. Being the person that I am and growing up with mostly classic films and getting attached to the cast members, yeah. I'm not necessarily someone that's going to be like, woo, remake. Nah. Not unless it's really good. Uh, so what did we learn from the movie? I, I learned a few things. Mm, do tell. Uh, Gene Hackman. Uh, I think his main point was you got to help yourself. Yeah. And you got to keep going no matter what. The other thing I learned is everything in moderation, because we need to stay hydrated, but if we have too much water, we drown. <laughs> the one thing that struck me about this viewing of The Poseidon Adventure was, now that I know Roddy McDowell more through watching the movies and following along with your podcast, I, I saw him more. It's weird, because uh, the first few times I wasn't a, a fan per se. So I was like, oh, I recognize him, but you know, he's from the Planet of the Apes, but I didn't really think too much of it. But now I really appreciated his acting in this this film more. Yeah. That and uh in this viewing, maybe it's because I'm getting older, but Shelly Winters always looked like she was like 90 in this to me. Because <laughs> when I was a kid. And now I'm like, ah, she's probably in her late fifties. It's not too far away for me. I don't know. <laughs> Bro. Probably by the time I get to be Grandpa Joe's age, I'll be looking at Shelly Winters going, 
That's a piece <laughs> right there. I, I want to read the book. After watching this, I, 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 this time, I want to read the book. From what the research said, though, the, the book is much darker than the movie, though, so be prepared. Really? Yeah. Do the same people survive? Wait, don't tell me spoilers. <laughs> okay, tell me. Are you sure? Mm, tell me how many people are different. How's that? So I don't know who survives and who doesn't. One person. One is different? Okay. Robin doesn't make it in the book. Oh, Eric Shea. Yes. Okay. Is that the uh, musician that died? No, that is the, that's Pamela Sue Martin's little brother in the movie. Oh, okay. Oh, the kid dies? Mm -hmm. So sad. Man. He dies going to the John. Oh, I was wondering why that scene was in the movie. Because it's just like he's standing and looking at upside down urinals. I'm like, this is very weird. Yeah. But maybe people that had read the book thought, oh no, the kid's going to die when they're watching this in 1972. But then Gene Hackman saved them. That was supposed to be the uh, the homage when uh, when he rescued him and brought him in and, you know, takes him back to his sister. And Susan goes, where were you? And he says, I went to the John. And she goes, what a stupid way to die going to the John. <laughs> now that makes sense and it's funnier. Yes. At the time, I was just like, OK, that's weird. I can just imagine the people in the audience just dying of laughter that had read the book. <laughs> Like uh, when I watch Ready Player One, I mean, like it's different in the book and the movie. So you expect somebody to die, not die, and then it's different. So it's it's kind of a relief and a shock at the same time. Yeah. But uh, see, they didn't plan on um, Gene Hackman saving him. No, nope. I don't think so. Because you know, Lex Luthor could save somebody if he wanted to. Plus, the fact at the point in the book where robin dies they still had such a far way to go they needed somebody to help them keep getting through the boat because they didn't have acres anymore <laughs> well that's true yeah otherwise they'd be going blind right but that group of 20 people that was going towards the front of the ship what is that called i don't know the front mm, the uh, bow bow that's it uh <laughs> towards the bow of the ship uh, they were literally going down on an angle right and I was like, you got to know you're going down. This is not a good idea. <laughs> you're going to drown. <laughs> yeah. And they did. Yeah. Well, in the movie they did. In the book, somehow they survived. I don't know. Really? I don't know how that works. But... Oh, I got to read this book. Yeah. Oh, poor Roddy's little okay. knee. Yeah, that looked really bad. It does. So that's probably why he couldn't... See, that explains why he drowned in the shaft, because he couldn't make it back up, because he was only on one leg, really. Yeah, and when uh, when he's going up the ladder in that shot, um, if you pay attention, you see him. He's literally hopping up each rung on one leg. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, it's not like that wouldn't have been easy for Roddy because muscle man, but... Right, right. But your normal waiter on a cruise ship, maybe not. Not necessarily. So when did this movie come out? Uh, Was it around New Year's Eve? Was it December that year? It was, yes. December 13th. Gives it two weeks. Yeah. Three weeks almost to be relevant. Timely. Yes. So here's an interesting factoid that probably isn't in any uh, research anywhere, but I noticed it. Um, okay. After the ship capsizes, one of the first scenes where they close up on Shelly Winters and everything is quiet, you notice her that she's kind of muttering to herself. 
And if you listen very closely, it's very quiet, but if you listen very closely, you can hear that she's speaking Hebrew, and what she's actually doing is she's praying the mourner's Kaddish for those who have died. Ah, I was wondering what she was saying, but then I I figured it was Hebrew because they said they were going to Israel and all that. Yes, because they, they were Jewish. But at first I was like, what? Yeah. Oh, a different language, okay. Yep. Here goes Roddy, climbing up the ladder with one foot. Oh, no. Poor love. Oh, no, no. Next time I watch it, I'm going to be traumatized at that part. Because <laughs> I'll know it's coming. Right. Because when he fell, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, Orange Park down, I'll get him. It'll be okay. And then I was like, he's not okay. Yeah, I know. It doesn't help that that ladder was covered with oil and stuff, so it was slippery anyway. And then the boat did that. Boom. Seriously, though, props to Roddy for that scream. Dang. <laughs> that was a good scream. Yeah. Screaming is hard. That is not something that I have ever been good at. So whenever someone is good at it, I'm always very impressed. A voice actor that's not good at screaming. I know, right? It's a separate skill. I guess it is. Huh? Uh, yeah. I think the reason why these movies are so good is because... Yes, it's a lot of trauma and people die and it's a horrible situation. But at the end, you're still with the people that lived. So you get that sense that it is possible to survive anything. Yeah. So in a way, it does kind of give you hope. Yeah. It's kind of like a horror movie almost, you know, where people get killed off one by one. Mm -hmm. But it's not a killer. It's just a circumstance. Yeah. It's a very good film. Very good film. It is a very good film. I'm sure it's on the AFI Top 100 films. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't surprise me one bit. It's it's one that I'll get when it comes out in 4K and 8K and whatever, 10K. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely made its impression on the hundreds of millions of billions of viewers over the last 40, 50 some. I guess it's 50 years now. Really? Yeah. So 1972 was 49 years ago. Wow. So this movie is 49 years old. Doesn't seem like it. It does and it doesn't. It was filmed so good that it still holds up today. Yeah. I think. I think even modern audiences would be captivated by it every second of it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like it it does have that feeling of the before time. Yes. Like, I I think the before the 1980s, I think all of human history before the 1980s was about the same. Yeah. You know, there were shirts and there was, you know, pork chops and there was boats, but nothing really else. Right. But then 1980s on, everything started to evolve. Maybe that's just because I was a child of the late 80s. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Early 2000s. It, the, the thing about this movie, though, is that I mean, you can tell that it is an older film, but it's not so far removed from today that we can still relate to it. Because people then in the 70s were a little bit closer to what we're like now. Yeah. And um, it's not like Doctor Who where, you know, everything was low budget and the the film cameras were, you know, not necessarily what they should be. So everything looks outdated. It looks more updated because it had, for that time, the most updated technology that was available. And Shot on film. 
shot on film, so it has that nice film, crisp quality look that carries through. And it was the kind of film cameras that they kept using into like the 80s and 90s. So... Or like Panavision or something. Yeah, and that, that look just kind of carried through the decades. So it feels more modern than it is. And, you know, the writing was good. and good. The lenses they used were really nice. Uh, they still use lenses like that today in, in some films. Some directors use lenses like that. Yeah. Even the lenses from that time to get that look. Right. Uh, I noticed in one of the Roddy, first Roddy McDowell shots... Uh, they use that split lens that uh, lets two people in different planes be both in focus, and there's kind of that blurry line in the middle. Right. Uh, I just learned about that because I'd watched uh, the 4K version of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and they used that a lot in that oh, movie. Wow. Yeah, and that was 79, I think, was it? Huh. That just came out in 4K, so I was watching that noticing the lenses and i noticed the lenses in this were really nice like just beautiful beautiful film yeah the the colors particularly are really i mean even though everything is supposed to be dingy there's something about the firelight that's consistent in the background it really makes everybody just have like this gorgeous reddish glow on them and it yes it's a pretty film in the there's that one shot of roddy uh, where he had the fire on him and he was like orange and dirty and mm. it looked really good. And Gene Hackman, like the whole film, I think somebody was carrying a lit torch next to him because he had just fire sh- uh, shimmering off his sweat. Yes. The whole film, you know. And he's a redhead, so it really makes him pop anyway. And yeah. They really. I think coming out of the... mm, Sorry. They, they really knew how to light people well in this movie. Yeah. It was. Um, I'm sure it won a lot of awards. Do you know the awards it won? Um, I know that it won um, a Golden Globe for Best Picture. Um, it won an Oscar for Best Score for The Morning After Song. Mm-hmm. Um, also won a couple Golden Globes for that. Shelley Winters won the Oscar for her role as Belle Rosen. Okay, yeah, I could see that definitely. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that was it. Gene Hackman must have been nominated. Um, yes. Um, I think, I think he was, um, but he had already won a couple of Academy Awards. Um, so. They like to spread him out a little bit. Yeah. There were, um, there were five Academy Award winners in this movie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very big cast. Top, top cast. They did the same thing for the sequel in 1979 when they did uh, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. You know, I've heard of it. I don't think I've seen it. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Okay, so that's like one of my top favorite movies ever. Now, me, I don't usually like really? sequels. But that yeah. was epic. It was Michael Caine, Sally Field, Carl Malden, oh and, goodness. I mean, Telly Savales. Oh, wow. Who loves you, baby? Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's a classic. That is a nice. classic. Now I know what I'm watching later tonight. Yeah. Hopefully it's on a streaming service because I don't have that Blu-ray. I know it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, perfect. See, you would you would think it would be beyond, beyond this Poseidon Adventure. Is there another ship named Poseidon? No, they actually. Like, I don't know about it. They went back to the original Poseidon. Basically, it's it's based on the storyline like a couple of days after the Poseidon sunk. 
Okay. And after everybody's rescued and they are, um, they're grafters, they're going for salvage. And, um, so they find the Poseidon and Michael Caine's character is like, yay, loot, let's go. And so they go in and they find a couple of extra people that survived, one of whom is Shirley Jones. Um, and, um... They go in looking for money and stuff, and they find it. Of course, halfway through, you know, just trying to survive as the ship is Disaster. rapidly sinking, you know, they lose the money. And... <laughs> Man, now I gotta watch it. I gotta watch it. That's crazy. It's really, okay, it's really good. And Sally Field is adorable, and of course, she's adorable. Oh, her, yeah, she's good in everything. Yeah. Can you recommend a Red Buttons movie? I'm very much interested in him now that I've seen him again in this. Pete's Dragon. What's it called? Pete's Dragon? Mm-hmm. Was he the voice of the dragon? No, he was actually the henchman of the villain in the movie, and it's adorable. Um, It's a Disney film. It was done, I think, around the same time that this movie was done, if not before. Um, But uh, it's um, Helen Reddy, Michael, uh, Mickey Rooney, uh, Jim Dale, and Red Buttons, and Shelley Winters. Oh, interesting. It's really good. Um, another one I would recommend would be Hatari, um, which is a John Wayne film. Is that a war movie or a western? It's actually it's it's like an African safari uh, film, actually. Oh, and my dad loved the film, and I never watched it. My dad but has it on DVD, well. and I've I've probably seen it about seven hundred and fifty-two billion times because my dad is a <laughs> huge John Wayne fan. <laughs> It's a dad movie, I guess. It is a dad movie. Of course, John Wayne is like a dad actor, you know. Um, my, yeah. I was raised on John Wayne movies, so love him. So overall, on a scale of 1 to 10, would this be like your next favorite Roddy McDowell movie at this point? Yeah, I'd say it's my second favorite after Planet of the Apes. I can't. You know, because Planet of the Apes, he's just, like, so good in Planet of the Apes. Yeah, for sure. That was just my, like, you know, once a month, every Saturday morning on some local TV station, they would play Planet of the Apes, and I would watch it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this is a great film. This is definitely a top ten kind of film, you know? Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's one of those... One of those Roddy films that's going to last till the end of time. I have to say, I appreciated it more this time than the previous times. I think when I was a kid, I watched it because I was like, ooh, fire, colors, water. <laughs> but I appreciated it more. So maybe it's one of those films that I might revisit like every decade. You know, it's been about 10 years, I think, since I've seen it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, you'll have to let me know what you think of Beyond the Poseidon Adventure after you. Yeah. View that's it. my plan tonight. Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. There you go. <laughs> do it i'm committing to it right now perfect <laughs> well thanks so much for being on the show again it was great having you as always thank you so much for having me i'll, I'll always be on any of your stuff I, I love your shows that is all for this episode of not just yesterday the roddy mcdowell podcast thank you for listening this is zoe dean signing off and reminding you once again as always dear friends to keep smiling you seem to bring faraway spring near me. I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven. Every time the same thing happens, I fall once again in love.
but only with you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. If you enjoy the show, a great way to help support us is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. This gives us better ideas of how we can constantly improve the program for your continued enjoyment. You can also support the show by becoming a patron. To become a patron of Not Just Yesterday, please visit www.patreon.com slash Roddy McDowell pod. That's R-O-D-D-Y-M-C-D-O-W-A-L-L-P-O-D. The podcast is hosted, written, edited, and produced by Zoe Dean. The occasional co-writer, research assistant, and constant help with this podcast is Julie Carricker. The co-host for today's episode was Albert Burge. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Barren Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. The musical tracks, films, and television shows discussed and heard in these podcasts remain the property of their respective owners. Not Just Yesterday does not own the rights to these tracks used, nor does it claim ownership. Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast is not affiliated with any major film or television company, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. This has been a Barren Space production. <laughs> <laughs>